Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I'm still in Hawaii. It's been a really good week. We're actually leaving tomorrow when I'm recording this. When you hear this, I will be back on the mainland, as they refer to it in the U.S. It's been a really good week. Always goes faster than I think it will. And we realized we need more downtime than crazy fun time, but that was what we needed and it was nice. There is a record storm right now. So the last couple of days we haven't been able to swim or snorkel, but the waves have been really big and kind of fun to watch. But you did not come to this podcast to listen to me talk about my vacation in Hawaii. Though I always will recommend the island of Maui. This is our third time here in 10 years and we just really love it. When I'm selecting topics for Thursday episodes, I often think about the themes I see in my inbox, like an email and LinkedIn. I kind of joke that once you're trained in trend analysis, it starts applying to all areas of your life, including your inbox. And that kind of helps me know what do people want to know, what are what's top of mind. And sometimes it's specific trends, like several months ago, and I mentioned this at the time, the end of February and most of March, I was getting a lot of inquiries about account takeover, for example. And one merchant shared with me that they saw their ATOs go up by 8,000% in just that time. I shared with you my theories on why that was several episodes ago, but that's just one example of kind of this unofficial trend analysis that I do just kind of by accident. And lately, I've received several questions from solution providers, specifically salespeople, asking about sales strategies, understanding merchants, etc. And I think that sales in fraud technology and fintech is especially difficult right now. So I'm going to be sharing a little bit about why I believe that's difficult, as well as three of the core main questions I've received from solution providers lately. And even if you're not a solution provider, if you're a merchant or a consultant, I think these are really going to be fascinating for you as well. And might, especially for merchants, you know, there'll be information here that you might be interested in. And honestly, it might help you understand why your inbox has been so full lately, or just understand this other side of commerce. I've said often that my opinion of solution providers has evolved over the years, both from when I was a merchant, as well as from the beginning of my consultancy as well. And I think it's easy as a merchant to just be like, oh my gosh, they're all, put them all in a bucket. But I think what I've learned over the last several years is that not all solution providers in fraud technology or in payments and fintech are alike at all, not just the product, but also the way the company is run and the culture and their ethos. I have seen how VC funding has changed our industry a lot for the better as well for not the better, the opposite of that. So, you know, it's just, I don't know, I have this 10,000 foot view that I'm very grateful for to get to see all sides. And I'm also grateful to be able to work with a few solution providers in this area of helping them understand merchants, because I do think they're just totally different worlds. If you didn't listen to my merchants are from Mars, vendors are from Venus replay several weeks ago, I highly recommend that as well. And I do owe you guys a new version for sure, but this hopefully will help 
bide me a little bit more time there because I do put a significant amount of work into some of these episodes. For instance, the one that I did two weeks ago on the visa chargeback rule changes, I spent six or seven hours on the 4th of July holiday researching it, making sure it was thoughtful, making sure I wouldn't get in too much trouble with card brands or anything else. And then I was saying everything correctly as I understood it. And so those types of episodes, I just put a lot of work into. And I hope you guys appreciate that. So anyway, back to this topic. Here are some of the reasons why I think, just from my perspective, why I think that sales in this space is especially difficult right now. In one, VCs and investors are antsy. And they are, I mean, for lack of a better term, they are annoying the heck out of CEOs and heads of sales departments, et cetera, because they're nervous. There's been kind of this, I don't want to say endless, but it sure has seemed like an endless faucet of VC funding over the last several years. And because of the uncertainty in the economy and several other factors, that's not the case anymore. I know somebody who had an amazing idea for a startup that I just thought, wow, this is going to be a big deal. It's going to be a big thing. And I know they would have gotten seed funding even six months ago, maybe even four months ago. But now VCs are saying, like, we're just kind of holding out and seeing what's happening with our current investment portfolio. And understandably, but I know they're bothering their investment companies, which means that those investment companies, those vendors as we know them, fraud technology and fintech and payments companies, they're feeling pressure and, and they need to reach out as well. So that's one reason why I know it's really difficult for everyone. Also, and I'm sorry I put this on the other page, it's summer. I'm not the only one on vacation this year, especially after the pandemic. There were various levels of lockdown for the last two years. Almost everyone is going somewhere this summer, which makes it really difficult to get in touch with people. I know from current experience that the week before a vacation and the week after the vacation are so busy and emails get lost in your inbox. I've been trying real hard to stay on top of mine. It just it doesn't always happen. And I know I'm not the only one. So that makes it really hard as well as, you know, people are busy. I don't think I put this on my list, but it's also about to be Q3 or it is Q3 now, actually. And that is often when merchants are looking at their budgets for next year. And a lot of their budgets are much, much smaller than they were last year or they're trying to do a lot more with less. So, you know, because as we know, fraud is rapidly increasing, but that doesn't mean that the resources are. Additionally, merchants and marketplaces are uncertain about the economy and they're busier than ever with fraud growing and changing rapidly. So I guess I did put it on my list. But their own merchants and marketplaces and fintechs, if that's who you're selling to, are also uncertain about things. They're not really ready to jump on board and, and get new solutions unless it's an absolute need and they can really prove it out. And then lastly, and I'm sorry to say this, but a lot of merchants have sales fatigue. There are so many solution provider companies and reps vying for their attention and time that just talking to prospective partners and keeping up answering every email or call could be a full-time job in addition to their actual full-time job. I am close friends with several leaders in fraud technology. I mean, in addition to I would like to think I'm friends with or acquaintances with, but there's a few that I know really who have shown me their inboxes or told me how many emails. It's insane. And even just less than 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, there was a lot less companies on the market. So it just, it could really literally be a full-time job. And not all of them are in need of new solutions, or maybe they are in need of it, but they can't justify it to their business. 
So I think some things need to change there, but that's a whole other topic. But this is something that it's really hard. And just because your timing as a sales professional is, you know, I need them to sign now, 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 they may not have the ability to even think about that until later down the road. And they might have a problem, but it's not the biggest problem they have. I have a very good friend that inherited just a lot of challenges in a role that he just started not too long ago. And he's, look, I have a lot of fires, but I have to prioritize which fire is the worst. And so, yeah, I might be having a chargeback problem, but it's not as bad as all these other problems I have. And they can't always be open with you about that. But that is often what's going on. And it's just been extra stressful for people on the vendor side recently, especially because we've all seen multiple layoffs already. And I think we're going to continue to. So those with jobs currently are feeling extra pressure to close deals and continue to be relevant for their company. So... While I've been critical of some of the companies in the ecosystem, especially for aggressive sales tactics and or not innovating and improving their products, are some really great technology available or there is also some great technology available for, you know, knowing your customer, transaction risk, verification in various ways, etc. And I do know that merchants want to learn about new technology and some may buy, but as I, you know, mentioned in a previous episode the one Titled Merchants are from Mars, Vendors are from Venus, often it can feel impossible to understand each other. So going with the trend analysis of my inbox, I thought I'd answer a few questions that I have received from salespeople recently. And as I mentioned, merchants, well, this may not apply to you directly. I think you'll be interested in what salespeople want to know and understand about you and your people, so to speak. And please, if you have any advice to add on these and you're a merchant, let me know. I am so privileged and honored that some of you have literally told me that you feel like I'm your voice, which is that such an honor? It's a pretty big responsibility that I take seriously. I've had a few people say that to me where I'm like, whoa, that's a lot because you are work for a very big company, but I'm also very flattered, but I don't know everything. And so I really will never think that. So feel free to add to these if you want to. So the first question, I actually got in a text message not too long ago, and I actually added to it because it was just a short one. But why is it so important for merchants to know the ROI of a potential product before buying? especially when your product will help reduce a problem that's difficult to quantify, such as refund fraud, promo code abuse, increased customer trust. So obviously, if there's a product out there that's going to directly reduce chargebacks and you can do a POC, you know, a proof of concept and figure out kind of what that percentage changes, that's a fairly easy ROI. And then usually, oftentimes, any estimated ROI is less than what it usually is. Not always, because... As I have said, not every solution in this ecosystem is what I would consider good. Sorry, guys, but it's I, because it is so crowded, it, not all of them can be perfect or great or wonderful. And some work for some companies that don't work for others. So that's also important to mention. So this particular person, I was really surprised because to me, quantifying an ROI is so normal for e-commerce. I mean, in technology, it's the way things are done, right? Because every department wants to do everything. So quantifying ROI is one way to prioritize. But there are some problems. I mean, I worked with a potential merchant last year and we went back and forth for six months on a potential project to reduce their refund fraud. I knew it would help them and the fraud team knew it would help them. 
But because I hadn't done that specific thing for someone before, I didn't really have, you know, exact. But also it wouldn't it wouldn't have mattered. Even if I would have worked with another merchant in the exact same way, the success they had would be different than the success this other merchant would have. And they're a big brand that knew they were losing millions a month, but they couldn't quantify it. And I feel really strongly in my hypothesis. And I've been really lucky that any hypothesis I've put in place for merchants always has delivered an ROI. I can't think of a time when it hasn't, but it, and usually it's always much, much guess because I try to be conservative, even if I was working on, like when I worked solely on chargeback projects, I would be really conservative. I would say, you know, I think that I can decrease your chargebacks by 15% and increase your win rate by 30%. Or, I mean, I wouldn't say that to everyone. I'm just guessing. This is obviously, I would look at the data and the numbers and all that before I give out percentages. Though I'm sure if you're a merchant, you know exactly what companies will just blurt out an ROI and say, we can save you from 68% of your chargebacks without ever looking at your data. But that's, I didn't get the future telling gene. So I need more data and information for that. But just as an example, so I would maybe say, I can help you reduce your chargebacks by 15% and help you increase your win rate by 30%. I would say that even if I knew in my gut that I could help them reduce 30% and I could help them increase their win rate by 60%. That's my style. I know other consultants and vendors have different philosophies on that, but it gets harder when you don't have chargebacks, right? There's no chargeback data for refunds. So it's hard to even know how much it's costing you. I can show all the, you know, Telegram posts and Discord posts in the world to say, hey, these guys are really taking advantage of you. And I can say, look, we, here's what one merchant found when they really dove in and were able to look at those details and have the time. But because it was so difficult to quantify the ROI, as well as one other risk that was just very specific to that company, we never ended up getting to do the project. And they're still really struggling with refund fraud. Not to say that they wouldn't still be struggling with it if I helped them, but I know it would have been less because I knew and I wanted to help them so bad. Like I literally was like, I just want to give you all the answers. And I do that sometimes, but not all the answers. It's just anything that's going to take a long time and I need to like work on the project. I, I need to be paid for it. So anyway, I'm getting down this tangent, but that's just one example of a situation where it's really hard to quantify the ROI. And this particular salesperson, and I've heard this question before in different forms, was frustrated because they're like, look, I know I'm going to help you and I can show you that we've helped other people and it's going to help reduce fraud. Isn't that a good thing? And it'll probably increase customer experience. Why do you know exactly how much? I actually wrote back and said, have you never had to? And I realized that this salesperson came from a different industry. It's a similar industry, but not the same. If a solution provider comes from cybersecurity, they're probably not used to doing ROI because there's not really an ROI for cybersecurity. Companies just know that they don't want to get breached and they don't want to have data breaches and they don't. So it's a little bit different that way. And then also, if you are in AML compliance, those are regulations. Stephen Sargent actually mentioned this past week on Tuesday's episode or this week on Tuesday's episode, fraud is AML in motion. Well, AML is filling out SARS, the suspicious activity reports. You're not necessarily saying, hey, we're stopping this order. You're just saying, hey, they transferred more than $10,000 or we weren't able to get a name for here or whatever the suspicious activity is. There's not a one-to-one -one of saving money. But because there's regulations, that justifies it because no company wants to be out of regulation. Fraud is tricky. Payments are also kind of easier for ROIs because you can usually do a pretty decent job of estimating the interchange differences and 
you know, all that based on past data. And it may not be exact, but it'll be good. It's something. So it can be difficult. But in fraud, because there are no, it's just always the way it's been. And I think it's really difficult to change it within tech. Also, the technology companies are conscious about how they spend money. They're not just going to say, OK, we're going to throw this money up against the wall and hope that it works. They need to have some proof that it will work. And they need to know that it's going to be worth their investment. Because even if the solution provider gives them a great deal, et cetera, there's still a lot of internal work and internal costs in adding a new solution, whether that's product management, whether that is engineering time, whether that's just scoping it out from a strategy perspective. So it's really challenging. And then lastly, I think another contributing factor to it is that Unfortunately, not all fraud leaders are created equal. Actually, I should say fortunately and fortunately. But there's just a huge curve in difference between fraud management and how much they've been able to relay and communicate to their management on how important fraud is. So there are some companies where the leadership has put a lot of work in explaining to management and having a good track record and saying, hey, yeah. Every time I have a gut feeling that this product or this technology is going to work, it increases this. It does this. Not all of them do that. And so it makes it harder, too. And it's not easy to continually convince leadership and other departments of the value of fraud prevention over time. It's not something that can be done quickly. So those are just some of the reasons. But again, I'd love to hear from merchants how you would answer that if it's different than what I just said. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology, and one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. The next question, 
<laughs> this is probably the biggest question I get from solution providers, mostly at conferences, but all, I mean, it's a lot. Sometimes it's just like solution provider friends. They're like, Grace, why does this happen? Other times it's clients that are like, we're really struggling here. So here's the question. Why is it so difficult to get email responses from enterprise merchants? I'm not talking about first outreach cold emails. I mean, I mean, if we had a great conversation at a conference and I'm following up, just tell me if you aren't interested. I don't want to bother you, but I do need to get a response for my metrics. And so I know one way or another if you could become a customer or not. This is something that is so complicated and happens a lot. Maybe I just should have done the episode just on this, but there's a lot of reasons for it. In fact, Jared Price and I were talking a little bit about this before we recorded his episode a few weeks ago. Jared Price from Income. The episode was about gift card fraud. It was awesome if you didn't hear it. And he's great. But I can't remember. I think we mentioned it a little bit. Like he said something like he was excited to hear the survey results. But we were kind of talking about it earlier before the podcast because he was saying how like he is so bad at responding to vendors. And he's like, you know, usually they write me off and then I'll just pop up out of nowhere and be like, OK, I'm ready to implement. And I'm like, I'm kind of that way, too, in a lot of ways for other things. And I in some ways credit my ADD because or my ADHD, because oftentimes I'll look at my inbox and I'll see an email and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I want to respond to that thoughtfully. So I'll mark it as unread and then I just completely forget about it. And it is not personal. And I have so much guilt and shame over feeling like a bad business person. But it's often because I didn't have time in the moment and I wanted to have more time and I just didn't get back. But there are other things, too, around ADD and ADHD, where we constantly are juggling 17 different things and we're really good at it, but we drop a ball here or there. And if we we also have to prioritize, right, because merchants inboxes are so damn full. It's not like every company is just sending one email every month, right? Some are sending them every day. Some are saying. And sometimes you have the company marketing emails plus the sales rep emails. And then plus you've got LinkedIn contacts. It's a lot. Like I said earlier, it could be a full time job, especially the bigger the brand, the more wanted they are by salespeople. My biggest suggestion to my client, I mean, I have a lot of them, but the one that I'll really share here is make them want to respond. I mean, hopefully you have a product that is something going to solve their problem in a way that nobody else can, that they need to respond. Make it a need need to have, not a nice to have, right? That kind of goes with the ROI question too, right? It needs to have value. And I think it's going to work. Uh, and you need to be good at explaining it. And you need to understand what else they're working with or what else they know, who else they're looking at, et cetera. So, and also again, they may not have that problem right now. You might be reaching out to them now, but they may not have that problem now, or it might not be a big enough fire now, but it will be soon. And so planting those seeds is important, but I also know you all have metrics to meet. You all have, quota is not the right term, but you know, your KPIs and everything. And I also know that having open items in your CRM, whether it's Salesforce or others, where you're just kind of waiting out there can cause issues with management and all that stuff. I mean, it's one merchant said, I can't imagine how many times my current vendors have conversations about me, let alone prospective ones like, OK, how can we figure them out? How can we sell to them? I'm like, yeah, don't think about it. It will be painful. But I do I do feel like, OK, so I'm sorry again because I have ADD. I just went off on a tangent and then coming back to this. I'm sorry, guys. I do still have vacation brain. I mean, I am still in Maui, so I guess I am still on vacation, but it's my fault for not recording this before I left like I had planned, but I just had way too much on my list. 
but the ADD thing. So Jared and I really felt like maybe it's because we have ADD. So I put out a poll on LinkedIn after we talked and I think the options were like, I've been diagnosed with ADD. I haven't been diagnosed with ADD, but squirrel. <laughs> um, and then, nope, I can multitask. You know, I, I'm good. I don't think I have this problem. So our theory was we wondered how many people in fraud fighting are either diagnosed or have pretty consistent symptoms with ADD or ADHD. I did not look up the exact stats because it was a couple, it was a while ago, but I want to say it was like 65% of all fraud fighters that answered that question either were diagnosed with ADD or had felt like they had a lot of the symptoms and identified as having the symptoms. And I think that ADD gives fraud fighters a superpower in a lot of ways. We can get laser focused on something and really dig into it and just stay on it and forget to go to the bathroom, forget to drink water, forget anything, just zoom in on it. But we also can get distracted very quickly and we can forget things. I don't know. I literally thought I was having like early stages of Alzheimer's before I got or dementia even before I got diagnosed with ADHD because I would want to remember things and I just couldn't to save my life. And it was really hard because it was things that I wanted to do and people I wanted to reply to. And I even if I had a couple minutes, I'd be like, okay, what do I need to do? And my brain would just go blank and I wouldn't remember anything. So it's not personal in that way. I do know that some of it is personal. There are some merchants, some people and personality that don't want to say no because when they've said no or, hey, this just isn't the right time now, past salespeople have pushed really hard and it's just been difficult. So sometimes they just kind of ghost you and they don't respond, which isn't fair. But I also have empathy for that because I understand. So my advice to solution providers is if somebody says now's not the right time, say, okay, but maybe, hey, Hey, can I check in with you in a few months, in six months, whatever? Because now might not be the right time, but later might. And you don't want to burn a bridge. If you keep pushing them, you're burning that bridge. And even if they have that problem later on, they're not calling you. They're calling your competitor. So that's one thing that I would definitely recommend. I will say to merchants that are listening to this, if somebody's cold emails, we get it. Like you can't respond to all of them. If you've had a conversation with somebody and they're reaching out to you, doesn't take too long just to say, hey, you know what, we're I'm really underwater right now, or this isn't a priority right now, but I was really interested in your solution and would love to hear more about it next year at the next conference or whatever that is. Giving them a response back is helping them do their job, but it's also helping you clear out future emails because as a friend of mine in sales pointed out, he was like, I have to, as my job, keep following up if I don't hear back and I don't want to follow up. I don't want to bother them. I don't want to be the, a pest. I would want to know, hey, don't write back to me ever or don't or write back to me in a year. I will stop sending more messages that way. And like I said, the good ones will. The ones that don't, maybe they're going to end up blocked. And unfortunately, I've actually heard stories of solution providers being blocked not only from company domains, but like from general domains because they send so many emails out and people either mark it as spam or the system thinks it's spam. So don't be like those people, but I know you need to try to connect. So, you know, try to make sure that your connections are memorable. Try to do what you can. One friend of mine that's in sales has been writing the funniest emails that if merchants do open them, they can't help but respond. Like multiple choice with really funny reasons why they haven't gotten back to them. They were attacked by a shark or whatever. So that can be one way to do it. But I feel like for merchants, the longer you spend with a specific sales rep, the more you're obligated, you should be obligated or feel obligated to respond back. Whether that's I'm interested, but I'm waiting on budget or 
I'm not interested at all or anywhere in between. I even have heard from a couple of solution providers where they've provided a proof of concept, which is a lot of work for them, and they're not getting paid, right, on any of this. And so I can see both sides. It's not that I'm taking the solution provider's side. There are definitely, there's definitely some bad sales behavior out there. And our industry is very unique in the fact that a lot of traditional sales tactics, so to speak, don't work because we have been well-trained in social engineering and a lot of sales tactics are really just, or tactics are really just social engineering. You know, these emails of like, hey, so-and-so said that we should talk or, I mean, just ugh, all the, all the games, like none of that stuff works with us. But vendors are, they'll go through all this work to have many meetings with the merchant and go through lawyers to sign up NDAs and then proof of concept contracts and going through and the vendor will be like, wow, we saw that we could save them X percent or X dollars and that's huge. And then we never heard from them again. And we invested a lot on the POC, right? Whether that's by having their analysts look at things or running it through their machine learning or whatever the, the merchant or the vendor is, it's a different process for a POC, but it's a lot of work on their end. And again, they're not being paid. So I would say I don't understand why merchants don't respond after a POC. Like, I feel like at that point, you guys have had a lot of dates. It's almost if we're comparing the merchant vendor relationship to dates, if you've gone through a POC, like you've met the parents, you've kind of gone behind the scenes. So going to go meet a significant other's parents and then never hearing from that significant other again would be weird. So maybe think about that vendor. And I think merchants need to be less afraid of hurting feelings and know that it's better to communicate something than not communicate it at all. So I do have most vendors back on this one, though. I like I said, there are some that just merchants may feel like they can't tell you now. So that's definitely something to think about, too. OK, last question that I've been receiving more than usual. Why won't merchants tell us what their biggest issues are? And I think this is more like top of funnel sales, right? When you're first talking to them, that is a well-known sales tactic, or maybe it's just sales 101. I don't know. I haven't been through sales training. They often will say, what are your biggest problems? And I actually coached a, a vendor client of mine on this a few months ago. They were really new startup. And so they hadn't done this. For, and when they get on the phone with a really big company, they'd be like, so we want to know what your problems are. They don't even know what your tool is yet. So, okay, first, why don't you show them what you solve and how you work? And then you can say, hey, do you feel like this would solve it? And if not, what would? But you can't expect these huge brands to just hate this term so much, but open up the kimono to see, I don't know how else to say it, but really open up and say, oh, we have this problem and that problem and that problem for several reasons. I mean, one of them is just privacy and security, right? They probably aren't allowed to. I mean, the bigger the company, the less anyone is allowed to say especially in fraud, right? It's very sensitive. But also, like, there isn't trust built yet. So why would they feel like they could tell you, like, what their biggest vulnerabilities are if there isn't trust? And unfortunately, that trust, I saw it more in the earlier days when there were less solution providers out there and the salespeople were more industry experts and it was smaller and people knew each other better and stuff. That sometimes that would happen more like, hey, we're having this problem because they trusted them. But then what's happened too is, that trust being exploited or broken in the past, where either the vendor now knows what the problem is and now they can zoom in on it and then they can call the CFO and say, oh, when I talked to them, they said they had this problem. And they told us, I mean, guys, there are a couple of companies that have a playbook where they just contact 
the person above the fraud manager either to badmouth the fraud manager, which that has never gone well, that I've, I have never heard that working well, or to say, hey, you know, when we talked, they had this problem or I don't, maybe they haven't talked to you about us, but they need to. That is the worst thing a sales, that is one of the worst things a salesperson can do. I got another text from a merchant you know, this week saying this company called my CFO and tried to tell them that I didn't know what I was doing so that they could hire them to, you know, outsource everything to them. It doesn't end well. I mean, they usually trust their people. And if they don't, then I mean, even then, if they don't, it's still bad. But I mean, it got tricky for me because solution provider has asked to work with me. And I thought that maybe things had changed until I heard that. And it, it stinks because I, I would like to have more clients too. But at the same time, I can't work with or help companies that are exploiting merchants. That's just, I can't do it. I'm too much of a merchant at heart and I don't want to help, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing, as they say. But yeah, so having that trust be exploited, okay, so maybe a merchant told you something and then now you go call their boss and say that that's what they said, or you're telling it to other people. This happens too often. One time way back in the day when I was a fraud manager for the startup Bagbar or Steel, payments company came and said, you know, we're doing all this cool stuff for a really big company in your area and started telling me all these like secret things they were doing for a company in the area. And said, look, that's the kind of stuff we can do for you guys, too. And I was really disturbed by it because my husband worked for that company. And I knew that he knew a little bit about that project, but it was super, super secret squirrel stuff. And so I told him, I was like, hey, I don't know if this person was supposed to tell me all this detail. And he just looked like he was scared that I knew it because then he was afraid that if I told anyone, they would think that he told me. And so, so needless to say, we did not work with that vendor. And I don't know what happened on my husband's work side because it's not my business. But I do know that he reported it because he was really bothered by it, too. A lot of these things are new, especially in payments, but also in other areas, too, right? If a enterprise merchant is going to add a new line of business, like there's a few that are looking at NFTs or that have added NFTs recently. They might reach out to a few vendors and say, hey, you know what? We're about to add NFTs. We haven't announced it yet, but we're going to need a new solution. If that gets out, even to other merchants, never tell a merchant something that you don't want to get back to other merchants because it probably will. It's kind of, it's, I won't, don't want to compare it to high school, but just don't assume everything's sacred because there's that bond. And oftentimes too, solution providers will be like, oh yeah, we work with so-and-so. The first thing that merchant's going to do is look up if they know so-and-so or reach out to them on LinkedIn, or sometimes they're asking me for an introduction and I will help them. I mean, often they don't usually tell me why, right? So it's not like I'm like, ooh, I want to help stick it to that. But no, I just, I'm like, oh sure, I can help you introduce that person. So really be careful about what you said there, but also I think it's important to understand that you haven't earned their trust yet. And unfortunately, maybe a company got their trust sooner and broke it. And so it's your job to show them what you can do and ask for feedback, but don't expect them to tell you all their problems right away or even in the first couple of things. I mean, that's again, going back to the date analogy, right? That's like going on a first date and asking about their past relationships or all of their issues. And I do know people that do that, but when they do, they usually don't get a second date because that's a lot. So maybe just focus on putting your best foot forward and showing them what you have to offer before asking them for the specifics. And then, yeah, so anyway, that's 
what I have to say about that issue. Again, if you are a merchant and you are yelling in your earbuds and saying, Carice, you didn't say this or that, please let me know. This is what this platform is for. I am so grateful that I get to learn so much from so many of you and then share it out with the industry. I am beyond grateful. I will tell you that my sister and her four kids are also here in Maui. We're celebrating my mother's retirement and I don't see them very often because they live a few states away. We're all busy and everything. And my 10-year-old twin nephews were very perplexed about why anyone would want to listen to their auntie for a couple hours a week. And I was like, I know, it's weird, buddy. But they uh, they did actually want to record on here and say, why are you listening to my auntie? But I was like, go swim in the pool since we can't swim in the ocean right now because mm, surf advisory. But anyway, I mean, it's hopefully you guys are going to get out of that. But I'm like, I don't know why they do either, but I'm grateful that they do. And I try to put out you know, as good a content as I can. But also, I mean, if you ever ever have a specific topic you want me to discuss or want me to have a guest to talk about it, let me know. I am doing the best I can with what I know. If there is an area that you would really love to hear me or a guest talk about, let me know. This is a two-way street, guys. This is you know, I'm just talking into a microphone, but I do also know that you're listening eventually. So <laughs> well, with that, I am going to go enjoy the last night of my vacation and then I have to pack. But thank you all for listening as always and just being such an amazing audience. And I will talk to you more next week. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.